All right, welcome to the Teachka Rockstar Podcast. And on today's episode, we have retired detective Phil Waters. And listen, I, th- these these are the podcasts, these are the interviews that people love the most. And for whatever reason, man, I get the most um, listens on these type of episodes. I'm fired up for this one. So uh, most recently retired detective phil waters he was with the hpd houston police department and he was there for a he's been in law enforcement for over three decades and has been involved in over 400 murder investigations listen 96 percent of them were cleared and here's the crazy part 90 percent of them were you know they they got a confession there in the box and i'm going to tell you right now i'm addicted to any show that shows live footage of a detective in the room with uh what are they called the suspect suspect that's <laughs> it yeah alleged murderer suspect yeah right and uh oh, here we go teach good rockstar podcast detective phil waters let's do this all right man let's start this off with a confession here it is i spend hours on youtube watching shows where there's a detective in the box in the room with the suspect and to you know what it is you want to love about it i love they have such a command of the language and in in communication skills and you can see they have such a deep understanding of um of, of humans just human interaction and and the way they artfully and scientifically um run this this questioning all to get to that end result it's amazing well, those folks that you're watching on, not not all of them are that description. Right, that's true. And uh, <clears throat> the ones that are, though, are the guys that have dedicated themselves, and the women, uh, men and women that have dedicated themselves to bettering themselves in the interview room. And it is, uh, I, I teach and I preach about the art of the interview. And it is an art. Uh, it is a skill. It is something that you have to work hard at getting better at. And as long as I've done it, I still have not brought myself to the level that I want to be. So every interview that I've done, I always go back and I critique myself. Is there a question that I should have asked? Is there a question I shouldn't have asked? And gauge the responses and try to do a more thorough job the next time. But every case is unique. Yeah. So every theme is different. Every approach is different. You know what's fascinating for me? Not only is it the organization of the question, but it's the silence. Like when I'm watching them and I can see they're just letting this person sit there in silence and 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 just watching their body language. It's fascinating, man. Well, to mention the sitting in silence, I don't uh, subscribe to that. The, we call it a, we might do what we call a pregnant pause. Yeah. There are some schools, there's a lot of different interview schools out there. You know, there's, there's the, uh, uh, with, with a lot of different philosophies about interviews and that kind of thing. Body language is body language. Yep. Uh, eye movement is eye movement. So some of the basic stuff, it, it's out there and it's all the same. Just different schools have taken it. Uh, they call it something different. It's all the same stuff. Yeah. Uh, they might take it a different direction. And in, in, in the schools that, that my uh, old partner in, in homicide that we developed, we had our own philosophy about how we taught the interview process. So I think while we were using the same techniques that 
everybody uses we had a different approach to it yeah you know it seems to me that um just like any profession or any art or any science or any skill it's really I'm, some people call it the the 80 20 i call it the 90 10 where really it's like the 10 percent um through i think it's a combination of um they just have a talent and a knack and then also just crazy work ethic and a dedication to getting better and better and better at it and um it seems to me in just those videos i watch like it is like 10% of them are just extraordinarily good. Well, I would agree with you. They're not everybody is going to be in fact I say this in classes that I teach. The purpose of the class is not to turn everybody into little fills and my partner's name is Brian. So mm -hmm. we would say uh, you know it's, it's not to turn everybody into little fills and Brian's because we've certainly got more than enough of that already. Uh, what we want to get across is is that if they'll work if they'll work at it, if they'll develop the skill, whether they are uh, naturally comfortable in that setting, they may not be a great interviewer, but they're going to be a better interviewer. Yep. And they're going to find that their communication skills will open up in a way that they never imagined. Yeah. You know, for me, I you know, I, I, I took a lot of heat for this a while back is um, – I mentioned somewhere, I forget where it was, that I said, you know, I'm not sure in, in, in my world, in the education world, I'm not sure I can take a really bad teacher and make them great. I think I can make a bad teacher pretty good, but I think they, in order to be, they have to have a little bit of a talent and, and just kind of born with that something to be great. I, th I mean, I'm just assuming in your world it's probably the same. Oh, no, it is. You know, not everybody is, even, even in the small world of law enforcement, not everyone is cut out to be a homicide detective. Yeah. I mean, that's just the nature of the beast, right? Uh, I was a narcotics detective, did a lot of undercover work. Not everybody's cut out for that type of work. Uh, some people are just cut out. Uh, they, they love patrol. That's where they, they found their passion. And what I tell people in the classes that I teach is that's what I tell them. I said, look, if you'll take, if you'll take what we're teaching here, and the philosophy with which we're teaching it regarding communication with people because it's about relationships. And if you will concentrate on those, those things that we've told you that you need to do, you're going to find your whole world is going to be opened up to a, a new reality. And whatever you're doing, whatever facet of law enforcement that you're in, or whatever you're, whatever you're doing in life, I would tell people that develop a passion for it. Find that thing that you've got a passion for and then develop those communication skills, whether we want to call it interviewing, interrogating, whatever you want to talk about, it, it, whatever you want to call it, it is about establishing a relationship with someone that you can talk to anyone. Yeah, it's so true. And I mean, education is the same thing. And first of all, like finding that passion, that's really the message for teachers nowadays is, look, yeah, we want kids to understand that sometimes you have to do a bunch of stuff you don't want to do. And sometimes you have to learn some stuff you really want to learn. But in that, in the moment, in that, at the same time, I want those kids to find what, I don't care what it is, just so you love it. Because when you love it already, you're going to be good at it. Simply, you know, just because of the fact you love it. And in addition to that, you know, teaching is the same thing in your, as in your world where it really is about relationships. And also what's amazing with, with what you guys do and in the, in the experts in your field is how quickly – um, that that those people that are sitting before you in might in, in the crossroads of their life 
like in the most important moment of life, that you, they just have a knack for building the relationship so quick and a sense of trust and a sense almost like a fatherly family feel to it. It's impressive, man. Well, the we, we've we've used the term relationships here in the course of the discussion, and I and I will start out my classes with saying that that's what life's about. So life is about a series of relationships. The minute you come out of the chute, doctor pops you on the rear and says, welcome to the world, that's a relationship. That's your first handshake. That's it right there, right? <laughs> and so that continues through your life. Now, we're going to have relationships that are going to, some are going to be shallow, some are going to be deep, some are going to be mediocre. They're right there in the middle. But I use the example of walking into a store. You're walking in and you're, you're buying something. You go up to the uh, a clerk. They're checking you out. The clerk's having a bad day or just has a bad attitude about life in general. And you're going to be affected, even though that relationship may be a matter of a couple of minutes, you're going to be affected in a way with that relationship because you're going to walk away from it and you're going to be thinking to yourself, gosh, I wonder what's bothering them. I wonder what's wrong with them. And it's just something that we will do um, as, as human, uh, the human nature is to wonder. Now, the other hand, you walk into that same store and you walk up to the clerk that's joyful about their job, joyful about what they do. They want to make sure that the customers that are coming up to them are, are satisfied and go that little extra mile. You know, you're going to walk away from that relationship and it may be the same amount of time, but you're walking away from that with a very positive outlook on things. So we have an effect on everybody that we meet and every relationship uh, has to be dealt with. And what I teach is, is that everyone that you come in contact with, you have to treat them with dignity and respect. And in my world, that is paramount because you've got people that are in that room in the homicide division of the Houston Police Department and a homicide detective is walking in and is going to talk to them and we all know why they're there. Yeah. You know, I hate the term persons of interest. I hear that all the time. You know, persons of interest is a, a television show that used to be on CBS. Uh, it's not a term that I ever use. If, and I don't know where it came from. It, uh, I, I don't know if it's, it's designed to try to make somebody who is wanted for some questioning to make them feel better. I, I'm not sure what the, what, who came up with it, but if I'm interested in you, you're a suspect. So I have to, we all know why we're sitting in the room. So when I walk in, the first thing I have to do is establish a rapport with them. I want to start building uh, an atmosphere of trust and to get a person who's done a horrific act, committed a horrific act on another human being, the taking of their life, that's uh, that's the challenge uh, of walking into that room and starting that that interview, that discussion. When you first started this, I'm, I'm assuming you know you, you became a skill over time. But when you first started this, was it hard to put that aside? Those feelings, like especially the ones where you know, you know that's the guy. Was it hard to put those feelings aside so you can build that trust and that res- that, that that mutual respect? No, because the the philosophy of walking into the room is, well, first of all, look, the whole time that I worked at the Houston Police Department, working in the, in that, in the homicide division, I'm keenly aware that I'm employed by the Houston Police Department. 
I'm more aware that I work for God. When I walk into that room, I know that I'm walking into darkness, and I'm going to be the light that's going to be removing the darkness. And not only from the room itself, but from that person, from that person's heart. I want them to be able to open up to me, and I can't do that unless I walk in there and treat them with dignity and respect. If I walk in there with an attitude, and it will show. Sure. If I walk in there with an attitude that I'm not happy about them, I'm judgmental of them. Out to get them. I'm out to get them. I'm out to build a case on them. I'm going to get nowhere. Yeah. So the... The point is, uh, the minute I walk in the room, and everything has a purpose in that room. The way the room is set up, if I have a, if I have a, if I'm taking, we have two different types of interviews: a non-custodial interview. They're not under arrest. They're not in custody. They're free to leave. Uh, on the other hand, we have a custodial interview, which they have to be read their Miranda warning, and they have to voluntarily waive those rights or give them up in order to carry on the conversation. So, but but it is it is the same. Uh, attitude with which I conduct both of those different types of interviews. If I have a in custody uh, custodial interview, most of the time there's going to be a patrol officer that's going to walk them in there and they're in handcuffs. The first thing I'm going to do is walk in and I'm going to direct that patrol officer to remove those handcuffs. Sure. Now, what does that communicate to the person I'm about to talk to? They don't know me. They've just now met me. But they know that I'm the one that's in charge. I'm the guy that's going to make this happen. I'm the one that's making this more comfortable for them. Offer them water. Offer the use of a restroom. Uh, and so we went, and I introduced myself as Phil Waters. I'm Phil Waters. You can call me Phil. What would you like me to call you? They'll tell me, and that's what I will go with. So, uh, yeah, it, it's about conveying an, an attitude that's non-judgmental. Uh, I'm not in there to uh, make a case on them. Sure. I do walk into the room confident that they're going to talk to me and that I'm going to obtain the truth, and that's what I'm seeking. I'm not seeking a confession. I'm seeking the truth. You know, I'm I'm wondering, um, you know, you mentioned um, your belief in God, and it, human beings are really complex. I've always said this, man, like, I uh, and it's it's a hard it's almost a hard conversation to have sometimes simply because yeah sure p- there are there people can do really horrific things but at the same time there's layers and layers and layers to a personality and that same person who did a horrific thing might have done something really nice and really good for somebody else an hour before that act and I'm just wondering for those personalities that you've come across in those hundreds and hundreds of murder investigations is do you have a feeling whether or not, like, it's, is it the nature? Is it the nurture? I mean, you know, there's so much could happen in this guy's life, or did they just show up on a planet like that? Well, I'm a Christ follower, and when man fell in the Garden of Eden, he's born into sin as a result. So all men are born into sin. Um, of course, the, the good news is, that's the bad news, uh, the good news is that God sent his son uh, to die for our sins. And our accepting him as our personal savior assures our eternity uh, with him. Now, there is a, trust me when I tell you this, there is a spiritual battle being fought on this planet. And it has been since the beginning of time. For sure. Uh, it's more 
I think people are more aware of it now only because of the the smallness of the world because of the communications that we have now. You know, we're, you know, I, I think that one of the things that's uh, been a negative is this 24-hour news cycle, right? So there's a lot of influences around, but one thing that, that I know for certain after talking to many, and I've talked to a lot of people, I've talked to, I've talked to, for lack of a better term, I've talked to good people that did a bad thing. They committed an act of evil. They took someone's life, and that's what happened. But for any other circumstance, they're good people. Now, on the other hand, I have talked to people who are bad people who committed an evil act and are in some ways just inherently evil, have chosen. That's the one thing, that's the one thing great about about what God gave us is a free will. We choose the path that we're going to go down. Yeah. He offers the gift of salvation, and we know what the results are if we don't accept it. And I don't, I don't take that approach from, um, you know, you know, people will disagree. Uh, you know, well, you know, this and that. You've got all these other different religion things, and and I and what I've come to know is that look, uh, I don't talk about religion. I talk about relationships. That's how we started this conversation. And the most important relationship a person can have is that relationship with Jesus Christ in a risen Savior. I, the the folks that offer up religion, because what people have to understand is that religion is man's answer to worship. So that's why we have different religions and different denominations, and we have, uh, you know, we have Buddhists, we have Confucius, we have Hindus, we have Muslims, Islamists. So those are all manifestations of man's desire to worship. So that's what religion is. That's why you have uh, conflict sometimes between what the Bible says, and I believe that the Bible is the spoken word of God, and uh, and it is the uh, it is true. Uh, from beginning to end. There's not one part of it that is in conflict with the other, and all of it is the truth. Uh, And the truth is designed to make us feel uncomfortable. So when I'm in that room, this is what I bring with me into the room. Knowing that getting to the truth is the most important part of this, and knowing that it's going to make them feel uncomfortable, but it is the one way for them to purge this act from themselves because I've told many of them in the room if you don't get it out now I give everybody the opportunity this is what I will tell them I give everyone the opportunity to tell their truth I can't tell it only they can I have a set of facts that are hard and cold you know these are the facts now I can have a lot of facts but it doesn't necessarily lead me to the truth and that's where they come into the conversation yeah you know what really fascinates me is you know at that crossroads you know when in one of the classes i've taught was a mentoring program and in that mentoring program um it's all seniors in high school and we go to the elementary schools and and meet with uh children and they have a a child that they see these seniors see at a at school every day at elementary school and in preparation for that we tell our own story And I give our kids an opportunity to talk about what's been really hard for them because they're about to hear that story from a child and it it prepares them and they hear from and they realize everybody has a story. Oh, that's right. Now, here's what's fascinating. Um, Out of 600 kids that would apply, 
you know, there's maybe 50 or 60 of them would get in. And the way I've selected them is because I felt through t- talking to them and watching them, they have the kindest hearts. Maybe they're not the academic all-stars, and I don't care. Maybe they're not the team captain, doesn't bother me. But they are the kindest people and most compassionate, full of empathy kids that I could find that I could take to the elementary school. And we talk and we sit. We call it the campfire. We sit around the campfire, and every kid tells their story. It is some of the most unbelievable things that have happened to these kids, uh, emotionally, physically, uh, the sexual abuse, uh, repeatedly, consistently for years to the court. And they're the most kindest, compassionate, and it, and it fascinates me as to how that kid ended up there, and another kid with even less than a story ends up sitting in the room with you. Well, you know that's the paradox, right? Yeah. I mean, I have seen many uh, to to kind of piggyback on what you're talking about. You know, I've seen people in the room that were brought up in good home. You know, to yeah. quote unquote, good homes uh, had two parents. Um, had all the all the uh, uh, advantages, and turned out to be these huge turds. And you don't you don't under that's a police term by the way, right, yeah. technical technical <laughs> term. Uh, and and they turn out that way. And then you have, as you've spoken about, you have these kids that have been under the most um, egregious set of circumstances, and yet they somehow they come out of it. And they are some of the uh, uh, kindest people on the face of the planet. And you said a couple of words there, kindness being one of them and empathy being the other. And that is something that I try to instruct, to teach, uh, to, to have people think about. That it's not about walking into that room and trying to prove what a, you know, what a bad detective, you know, you know, what a bad you know, cop you are and, and the good cop, bad cop and all that kind of stuff because those days are over. Yeah. Uh, the days of the dimly lit, smoke lit, uh, smoke filled room with the with the bruiser detectives yeah. in there with the you know Houston phone book A through M you know getting ready to tune them up a little bit. Those days are over, and thankfully as they should be. So what one has to understand is that at least in the interview room, that the days of force have now given way to the days of finesse, and a a. A good interviewer in law enforcement, a good interviewer in any setting, has to be empathetic to the person they're talking to, and especially the people that I've talked to over the, over the course of my career. They have to understand that I I do have an empathy, and I need to show that to them sure. uh, about the situation that they're sitting in. I know how difficult it is. I know what I know what they've done, um, and again, it's always a journey for the truth. I, I tell them straight up, look, I'm not in here to try to pull a Jedi mind trick on you. I'm not in here to try to sway you into a, into a conversation. What I'm trying to get to you is I've got two responsibilities. The first is I've got to find the right person who's done the wrong thing. And I will tell them, and that's why you're sitting in the room. And, of course, I get all kind of responses. Sure. You know, when that happens. Some of them just sit there in silence because they know. And then the other one, you know, they'll go, oh, what, what, and I'll say, just wait a minute. You know, got to, got to, Control that interview, right? Control that situation. And I said the second thing, and more important than the first, is I've got to get as close to the truth as I can possibly get. And the only way I can do that is to get your truth. Yeah. When they're sitting there and then you see some of those body language that um, just a 
telltale ones, you know, when you can watch their eyes when they, you know, or they have the memory direction and the, where they're creating a story in the other direction. I'm not sure I buy into that 100%, but it, it's something. And the, the nervousness, they're picking at themselves and scratching and moving around in the seat. But the biggest ones that, that I've noticed in um, is when the detective leaves the room, how many times do they put their head down and go to sleep? You know, like when, like, and then it comes out, they're, they're trying to take themselves into a different land or just, it's fascinating. No, I, I will tell you that I've seen that a uh, hundred times. What happens is the, you know, it's, it's, it's the human condition. Yeah. They have done this thing and their body has shut down. They have, they've expended so much energy and especially if they're in the room denying. Uh, it takes a lot of energy to deny, deny, deny. And so I'm not one of those that there are some schools of thought that you leave them in the room to think about it and that kind of thing. I'm not one of those. Uh, I stay in the room all the time. And unless they need to use the restroom, if I need to use the restroom, then they get the same courtesy. So uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay in there. As long as they will sit in there and talk to me, I'm going to sit in there and talk to them and listen to them and those are two key components of any interview uh, especially in that setting and it's and, and certainly in the in the classroom there's two qualities that i i preach in, in in the classes that i teach about interviewing and that is to you've got to develop patience you have got to be patient in that room and you have to learn to listen. Yeah. You know, God gave us two ears and one mouth. So that's that's so we can hear twice as much as we say. At least. Right. So I think with that philosophy, and you have to be, again, to use the word uh, empathetic, you have to communicate to them that you understand the emotions they're going through. And I've told people in the room, look, you're not the first person that sat in this room and talked to me about this kind of an event and I want you to know look I'm with you on this I understand what's going on I can almost predict what you're thinking in your head and it gives I think when you again when you treat when you treat everyone with dignity and respect and you remember the three things that we all have in common and I'm talking universally I don't care race creed color orientation uh, I, it doesn't nationality. It doesn't matter what flavor you are. We all have three things in common. The first being that we all want to be loved. The second is that we all want to be respected. And the third is that we all want the ability to take care of those who love and respect us. We just make different decisions about how we accomplish those three things. Yeah. When you're there, and this is the this is for most of them the most important moment of their life, sitting there talking to you, and and it seems to me there's got to be once they get it out, and they purge, and the light comes in, and there's this exhale from them. It, it, does that create a relationship, a deeper relationship where they feel connected to you? Like you know, do they want to keep in touch even if they go to prison? <laughs> like like that's the guy that let help me get it out, man. Well, I, I haven't had anyone write me any, any love letters from prison. <laughs> thank, thank you, notes. Or from death row. I, I've, I've, right. sent, I've sent nine to death row, including two cop killers. But um, um, I have had people make comments in the room once the 
the interview is is concluded. Yeah, they want some sort of closure. Well, I never use that word. Uh, closure is an impossible. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's an impossibility. It doesn't happen uh, on either side, whether it's victims or or the suspects, um, because that type of event. And, I, and I, I cringe. That's another term I cringe every time I hear a cop use closure. Uh, it, it's just not going to happen because that, the place in that heart of that family or that friend yeah. uh, that's been lost, which is now gone, will never be filled again. Yeah. And sometimes those fissures are so deep they don't even leave scars. They're just a deep, a bottomless pit. And so there's no way to, to, to gain closure. What, and I've had family members come up to me and say those very, you know, I just want closure. And I'm very straightforward. And I will tell them that I'm not going to be able to give that to them. What I'm hoping and praying is that I will be able to find the right person who did the wrong thing, bring about a measure of justice, and hopefully some peace for them. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, closure in that sense, and closure in the sense of the suspect just went through this emotional thing, and it's almost like a time now we have to a parting word, have to say goodbye. In that moment, is there some sense of them like they want to? Well, I will tell you this. So after when when a when a person find and 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 understand this too, you know, a lot of these people will give you what we call a self serving statement. Yeah. Now, they've made enough admissions, and they've made the admissions that's going, in terms of the prosecution of the case, it's gonna, it's, it's good. We, we've got what we need in those terms, uh, and, and I recognize that, too. I mean, I, I, I'm not, you know, I recognize when I'm getting that little bit of smoke uh-huh. blown, and I, I get it. And that's fine, but as long as I've gotten them to make those admissions that I need, uh, that I, I'm good. Now, some will give you, I mean, you know, it's the whole thing. I have had some at the end of those discussions. I had, in fact, one that's on uh, on one of the episodes. Um, it's on the uh, episode. Uh, you know what time it is? That was a four and a half hour interview. That's patience, right? That's four and a half hours, uh, and it was non custodial. I invited him down. He came down, and he stayed. Yeah, that, which has always amazed me that. That people stay because they ask so i can leave and you're saying yes you can go you're not you under arrest go. you're right but i can go to any time you can't but they you keep talking walk out of the room but they keep talking yeah a lot of and a lot of that i think is number one curiosity they want to know what you know although i'm not going to tell them everything i know and the other thing is they have a desire to, to use your word they want to purge this they, yeah. they really most people want this out they they can't they can't hold it in and in that particular case Four hours, four hours of his denials, four hours. And then the last 20, 30 minutes of it is his finally. I gave him a choice. I said, look, it either, you either went and you hurt this woman, you killed this woman, you murdered this woman. And I don't usually use those types of words until we're right down to the, I've got to make the stark contrast. Uh, In cold blood, or it happened the way you told your friend. It either happened the way you told your friend, or you gunned this woman down in cold-blooded murder. Now, which is it? Now, he, he had tried to deny, and I took that away from him. 
You can't deny anymore. That's You've only got two choices here. You either did it the way you told your friend or you're a cold-blooded murderer. Which one is it? Finally, he, he looked up. He went into what we call surrender, uh, which is the head goes down. Yep. When they come up, they're going to come up with one of three things. They're either going to deny, they're going to be uh, negotiating. Yeah. Uh, what would happen to somebody? Uh, right. you, know, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, they're going to come up with that, or they're going to come up with an admission. So he had been going into in and out of surrender, and he'd been coming up with denials, denials, denials. Uh, and finally. He comes up and he says, it happened the way I told, you know, my friend. So at that point, you know, to use the football analogy, you want to spike the football, you know, boom. I mean, yeah. you know, you got, you just scored the touchdown, but then you got to remember, you got to go for the two, right? So at that point you have to control yourself, your own emotions, uh, and tell them you're proud of them. You know, tell me what happened. Tell me. Start from the beginning of walking up and, and tell me what happened. And then, and they will. They'll open up and they'll start to talk. And you can watch their demeanor completely change. It's, like, it's almost like letting the air out of a basketball. Sure. I mean, it is, it's incredible. Uh, and you watch it, you watch it take place. And then, in my experience, you can't get them to shut up. I mean, they just start telling you everything, and then they they may tell you some things that you didn't even know. And I will, and I'll ask them. It's the old, well, why didn't you tell me that before? Well, you didn't ask, so you don't know all the questions to ask. But in the end of that one, and then he got, then we get up, and I, I have them demonstrate what they did, which is even in terms of the of the court proceeding yeah, later pretty on. pretty powerful. Yeah, that's pretty hard to deny that kind of stuff, right? <laughs> Go to a skit. Uh, right. <laughs> and uh, and they'll do that. They'll they'll demonstrate. Um, and so in that particular case, and, and I, I believe it's, I, I, you know, I haven't seen these shows. I've seen them for the first time myself. So I believe it may be in there. I hope that they captured the last thing that he said to me was, um, I'm sorry I wasted your time. See, that's 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 the paradox of the of a good person. Isn't it? That's a nice like what a good, <laughs> like you think what a nice guy. Oh, wait a minute, he killed somebody. Yeah, <laughs> right. And uh, and I've had people, um, you know, I've had people thank me oh. and uh, thank me for for listening to them. And, and and you know that's really what people want. They just they just want to be listened to and someone to be empathetic and to understand. And instead of instead of reacting, I think that, and I think that's the general problem with the with the world today. People tend to react. What I tell people in the in, a, in classes, whether it's in the interview room or, or in life, quit reacting and just respond. Yeah, that moment where um, when you go for two, 
and talk about how proud you are. You know, in the classroom, I mean, that, that's true for third grade. It's good, true for 13-year-olds. And, you know, whatever, if, if it's a behavioral issue you're covering, and you still let them know, hey, man, yeah, you have to, there's going to be consequences, but, like, I still love you, and I'm still proud of who right. you are as a person. That right there is what solidifies the relationship for the next day when the kid comes back because they always come back. And even in an academic setting where there's work they've done and, and it's great work and you let them know, I'm just those words. And looking them in the eye and saying, I am proud of right. you. It's powerful, not just for a third, a kid is 36 years old, too. No oh, one, absolutely. No yeah. one hears that. Oh, no. Yeah, people, uh, you know, we we kind of mentioned the human condition here. No, everyone wants to be encouraged to do the right thing. Uh, but, you know, again, God gives us a free will. And many times we make a decision in five seconds that affects the rest of our lives. And, um, that's just the nature of the beast. That's the world that we. That's the world that we live in. You mentioned the word kindness. I can tell you that that's another. Um, that's another lost trait, yeah. and we talk about that. In fact, I've sat in the room with a, a suspect who had beaten a man to death, kicked a man to death over a set of circumstances that he found offensive and. He even took his six-year-old son uh, with him, and uh, and uh, this guy had uh, an indecent exposure thing in front of his sister, and he went back and found this guy because he wasn't happy with what law enforcement did and blah, blah, blah. And, and he ends up um, beating the man down, kicking him, and then he, he died four or five days later uh, in a hospital. So in talking to him, and he was a family man. I mean, a good guy. I mean, he, he's a good guy. Yeah. Uh, he worked at a car dealership, an upscale car dealership. Um, and maybe even at first on the way there, maybe good intentions. You know, wanted some. Well, he was he was a little. Um, his good intentions were framed around. I'm going to make a point. Uh, uh, and he was intoxicated, and he drags a six year old little boy with him. You know, so he you know. So it was it was a really a sad set of circumstances. Yep. And but at the end of that discussion, he was truly remorseful about what had happened. And he was in tears. And and, and you got to remember when people go have tears, you need to be sure and make sure they've got some snot accompanying those tears because if they ain't no snot, you ain't got somebody these are crocodile tears. Right. So he would snot. We got the whole thing going on there, and talk to him about. I very rarely, in terms of, of what I speak in the room, uh, like literally bring God into the into the discussion. Uh, he's in there with me. I say a prayer before I walk into any interview room, and so I know he's present. But I tend to let if they want to bring God into the conversation, I'll let them bring God into the conversation. And um, it's it's interesting to, uh, because some of these guys know the Bible, certainly frontwards and backwards, and they're no more godly than, right. you know, the, the worst guy on the planet. For so sure. you got to be, so you have to be, you have to have uh, understanding and discernment and some wisdom about what you're being, what you're being given from these guys. But in that particular case, we talked about specifically talked about kindness, and um, 
and said to him, "We uh, didn't know where he was in his faith, but um, and he and his response was very quickly, no, I, I believe in God. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, I have faith.'" And um, and again, so this is an example of a good guy who did a bad thing. Yeah. And the circumstances were right for him to commit this act. And so, talked to him about. Uh, reading, uh, going into the Bible and, and reading about what uh, Christ says about about kindness, about treating people the way you would like to be treated. And uh, that young man, now he, he was one that over a period of uh, about a year would call and report in how he was doing and uh, the impact that that conversation had on him. So, there are those out there that uh, you know that uh, have called back and said, as bad as it was in that room, that there was something very, very positive and uplifting that came out of it. For sure, you know, in episode one, the uh, the the young man who goes into the lady's house. I don't want to give the whole show away because it, it's it's good because you got to get through a few suspects to get to the guy. Yeah, sure. And um, in that, like, I can't even get my head around how that could possibly even happen because of who I am. Like, you can't even, like, how do you get to that point in your life where that's something you do? But I'm wondering, were there are there other circumstances where you're sitting there thinking, man, I get it. <laughs> like, I I would be mad too. I get it. Um, in, in terms of my talking to them, uh, or any of those suspects, uh, those hundreds of suspects, where like it even almost makes sense. Maybe there was oh, why they did what they yeah. did. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, not that you would do it, but you think I totally get how you got there. You, 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 especially in instance of family violence, where yeah. you have a, a spousal thing going on there, and. Because I want to look at, you know, we're, none of us are innocent, right? I mean, it's the old saying, it takes two to tango. Right. And now, the person that did the act did the act. So you, 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 to say that somebody else is somehow responsible for what they did, I've never been a subscriber to that. But there are circumstances, again, we talked about circumstances, that will drive a person to do something that in their, in their wildest dreams never, never would have found themselves you know, sitting there over the, the body of their spouse, uh, having just killed them. Yeah. Um, so that's when we talk about a, a passion, the difference between a crime of passion and, and rage. Uh, passion uh, is going to be that type of an emotion. You've got an emotional attachment and usually a deep emotional attachment to that person and something goes way off the rails and causes that five-second decision to be made that you're you're going to take their life because they may have been doing something that you were fighting and they weren't going to let you up. Not not to justify the outcome, but in that person's mind again we talk about circumstances. So those circumstances are different for everyone. And those people in those circumstances thought that this was the only way out. I've got to get out of this situation uh, for whatever their reasoning may be. And, uh, and they commit that, that ultimate act of yeah. taking another, another's life. 
Man, when you were growing up, did you know this is what you're going to do? Like, were you were you a kid watching whatever was on Adam Twelve? <laughs> well, yeah, I was on the, the original Dragnet, Adam right. Twelve, Police Story. Um, did, did you did you know the Untouchables? Yeah, this is it. I, I watched all that stuff. I grew up in the '60s and '70s, you know. So, I I wanted to be. I also watched Perry Mason, and I wanted to be a lawyer. If you'd asked me eight years old, what are you going? I wanted to be a lawyer. In fact, when I went through, uh, went to college, and my plan was to, uh, I went into the Marine Corps, and I was in what they called the PLC Law Program. So I was going to go in, get my commission, go to law school, and be a JAG, and that was the plan. But you know, God puts you where He wants you, and that didn't materialize. I did go into the Marine Corps, but I went in as a ground officer and platoon commander, and had a, a a great time there and I ended up at the end of my Marine Corps experience uh, I was a representative for the government in administrative discharge boards so these were people that weren't kicked out through the court-martial system but they were brought in and they were recommended to be discharged under other than honorable conditions so it had the same effect as a dishonorable um, I was in essence the prosecutor for the Marine Corps now I'm not a lawyer but the Marine who is appearing before the board, they got a lawyer. So I was in the battle with these attorneys, which was very interesting to me. And I had conducted some investigations. I was working for the uh, 2nd Marine Division uh, Commanding General, Al Gray at the time, who later became Commandant of the Marine Corps. And he was very supportive of the work that I was doing. I ran 34 of those boards kicked out 33 of those people that no longer deserved the title Marine and retained one, and he was retained on my recommendation. So we have to remember that with whatever we do, especially in law enforcement, uh, it's, a, it's a combination of justice and mercy. So justice is what we deserve, mercy is what we need. And we have to be wise enough to discern which one of those and what level of, of those do we apply? So um, we, uh, um, in, in going through all those experiences, the the law stuff kind of fell out of the, kind of fell away, and I got more interested in the investigative side of the law, and uh, got out and, and decided I wanted to to go into law enforcement, and applied. At, uh, at the time, uh, at the FBI, I applied at Secret Service, NIS, uh, and uh, my local police department in Tulsa. Long story short, none of those worked out. I ended up in Houston, Texas, where my wife's family lived, uh, swore that I would never live and work in Houston. I was able to stay with never living in Houston. I lived in the Woodlands for a period of time and then moved to a uh, the west side of the county and of Montgomery County, and um, but I worked in Houston, so it was all it was awesome. I had a, a an awesome career, and I had a real job before I became a cop. And uh, when I decided that I had the opportunity to to go to an academy and, and become a police officer, I told my wife. I said. Um, uh, I said, this is what I'm thinking about doing. What do you think? And she only asked me one question, which was, 
can we pay the bills? And of course, I lied and said, sure, we can. Easy. Right? Yeah, no problem. You know, we're good. We're good. Uh, because I took a huge cut in pay. In fact, I was making half of what I was making um, in, in, the, in the real job that I had. Yeah. But it has been a it was a calling for me. It was something that uh, I, I have no doubt uh, now at the end of uh, a 33 year career that uh, God put me where He wanted me, and then that then I did everything I wanted to do in law enforcement. Um, you know, like I said, jail, patrol, uh, SWAT team, narcotics, undercover work, and then 23 years as a homicide detective, and it was the most rewarding, uh, the most eye-opening, the most challenging job that I had, but for 23 years, I, I think it's it's what my wife uh, calls uh, my ministry. Yeah. When you were growing up, can you think back to who were some of those influential forces in your life? You know, what we, you know, in the classroom, we all keep in mind that, you know, for a lot, for most of our kids, we are the most influential adult in their lives. Whether it's right or wrong, they spend more time with their teachers. You know, if you just look at the data, look at the numbers, they, we spend more time with their teachers than they do with their parents. Now, sure, some kids have both, have both parents and they're in youth group and they have great, you know, competitive cheer or club soccer or whatever they're doing outside the classroom. But for the most of them, it is that teacher in the classroom. Can you think back in terms of influencing who you became and who you are today? Where Do, do any teachers come to mind, a teacher, a coach, elementary, middle school, junior high, high school? Well, I, I don't know that. I was uh, I was very fortunate. Uh, you know, I grew up. Uh, both my parents, uh, uh, strong Christ followers, uh, set the example for me. Um, the uh, biggest influence on my life and the biggest decision that I ever made or that anyone will ever make is to uh, welcome uh, Christ into your heart as a personal Savior. Uh, seven years old, watching Billy Graham on my parents' black and white television set, and he had a. Uh, after he was through with his crusade, he would turn to the audience watching him and, and say, you at home can accept, uh, accept the, uh, the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And I turned around to my mom at the age of seven, and I said, I want to do that. And so um, that was the biggest decision I made, the biggest influence, that single moment. But in terms of teachers, there was a... There was a um, uh, a, a man, uh, his name was Mr. Quiet was his name, and he taught my um, uh, economics and uh, civic uh, classes. And he was the nicest man uh, and the most patient man. And and I, I it's funny that you asked me that, about this question because he and myself included the students in his class we treated him horribly i mean i think back of some of the stuff and and i mean horribly i never saw uh, the man was so patient with us and so kind um and we took incredible advantage of him i mean but he never, he never broke that. Yeah. And you know, I and at, this was in junior high, so I'm in probably uh, eighth grade in Oklahoma. And 
it was later on after I'd gone through high school and was in college. You know, I went back and apologized to that man. That's powerful. What did he say? He didn't say nothing judgmental. Yeah. Now I'm kind of, you know, you can see I'm kind of getting, kind of getting to me, but I tell you what, it's it's important for me in that moment when I went back and asked him for forgiveness. Yeah. Uh, the mercy and the grace that he showed me. Some of the most heroic people are have accepted the honor and privilege of standing before kids. And what I love about it is, yeah, of course it's frustrating. Oh, <laughs> it's hard. Well, man. my wife's a teacher. My wife was a my wife retired as a, a speech therapist yeah. uh, for uh, after thirty four years. In fact, she's still doing the speech therapy thing now uh, on her on her off time. But uh, um, no, no, I I, I used to, uh, and she dealt with autistic children. Uh, you know, children that sure. need to you know work work with their speech, and I've gone to her classes a couple of times just to watch her, and holy cow! Oh, golly! <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, and of course, she's had to live with me for thirty seven right. years. So, uh, you talk about patience, and there's a reason why we call her Saint Sandra. Yeah, yeah. So, no, no teachers. Uh, and you know, it's amazing. I mean, here we are, what decades and decades and decades later, still. Um, talking about Mr. Quiet and still evokes emotion and memories and details and thoughts. I mean, it's amazing. That, what what an amazing profession. I love it. Yeah. No, no. It's it's uh, uh, especially in watching my wife, um, and she gets you know, um, we we talk about this all the time. Yeah. Um, I've had a couple of of uh, of, of people. Uh, in fact, since this show came up, uh, a, a young lady that was. Uh, my daughter's at my oldest daughter's age when we were going to a, a church in the woodlands um and i was working narcotics i had a beard the earrings the you know the whole bit sure. right the mullet and all that good stuff and um nothing says drugs like yeah, a mullet <laughs> yeah right exactly and so i uh, she in fact she sent me a uh, a message through uh, facebook and told me who she was and and just uh, talked to me about uh, we're talking uh, 30 years ago yeah talked to me about the influence that I had on so many of those young people at that church and I, I never would have even imagined uh, I, I've gotten cards from people that I don't even I, they were involved in a case um, I don't remember them I had a man that wrote me a card at Christmas and told me that uh, that the way he was treated the way I treated him and what I did for him uh, saved his life and I'm just uh, and I, I, to this day yeah. I, don't, I don't know what he's talking about uh, my wife gets uh, letters, uh, cards, uh, thanking her. Yeah. And so the point I'm trying to make here is, is and my wife and I talk about this all the time. And you and you and people need to think about this. Um, you never know. You never know who you're going to influence for good. You just never know. And that thought ought to keep you humble about the way you conduct your business so many times it's proven to be true where i'll, I'll find, happen in minnesota in airport in the airport oh man boom i'm turning around i'm thinking and i don't recognize them at first because they're, they're old and it's past puberty and they're tall and they're you know and they got a beard i'm thinking who is it but i can see it in the eyes 
And the way, the way it works in my mind, I sure. can picture that. Then I'll picture who that, what table that kid sat at, who was also at that table, and what year that was. It'll all start coming back to me in those little details. And here's the amazing part that uh, I think every teacher has experienced, and even in your profession, they start to tell stories. And they're like, I'll never forget the time that you... And I can't tell you how many times I have no idea what they're talking You've about. You've long forgotten it, right? And this is this is this is the first thing this kid remembers. It's at the forefront of his mind. Every detail. He knows the day, the month, the year, what everybody was wearing, what we did, what was happening. And I have no idea. And it's in that moment I think, oh my goodness, what if I said something else and negatively? And that still same. It would still be in that kid forever. It's terrifying. He would have remembered it. Yeah. Terrifying. It's a huge if you if you sat and thought about it, it is a it is a huge responsibility. Yeah. And uh, of course, in my world, my wife, uh, we're both Christ followers. You know that that is a huge responsibility, and it's and, and, and I'm not certainly I don't, don't misunderstand here. I've made a lot of mistakes. I have offended a lot of people. I have uh, you know uh, made mistakes with my children. Uh, you know, in raising them. Uh, the message was always right, but the delivery was sometimes, you know, <laughs> sure. I probably could have uh, tempered it a little bit. But, um, but you know, that that's what we are. I mean, that's, we, we are people born into sin. We make mistakes. And uh, all I can say is, uh, you know, thank the Lord for sending his son. And we're going to celebrate his birth, uh, you know, here in a couple of weeks. And, uh, and we always want to connect the, uh, the incarnation of Christ to the cross because that's where it all that's where it all ends up, and uh, his defeat, uh, defeating death, and uh, yeah. saving us from ourselves. Here's it's an last... awesome, awesome uh, gift. It is. Here's here's my last confession before we shut it down. Is my birthday is three days after. Wow. And for years. Wow. Growing up, all those lights on the houses. I thought that was for me. <laughs> <laughs> We would go to church. That's a good story. We'd go to church and stand in the circle with a candle singing Silent Night. Right. And then you blow it at the end all collectively together. Yeah. Clearly. There's how. (laughs) Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And I would walk out to the center of the circle at six years old and look at everything. I appreciate that. Right. Yeah. All right, man. Thank you so much. Um, Detective Phil Waters and I catch it. Uh, listen, my, my wife got mad at the cable company and she pulled a plug on TV. Oh, so wow. I, I have to watch it online. And I know on my computer it's investigationdiscovery.com, the show interrogator. And if you're like me, it is it is a lesson in human nature and communication and persistence and not giving up. And I love it. And thank you so much, brother. I appreciate you. I appreciate you having me here, Hal. It's been great. Thank you.